So, we're in 1 Samuel 14. You guys, this is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. So I'm going to try to, like, control myself. But, not very much. Uh, the scene has been set. Sort of, chapter 13 and chapter 14 kind of go together. And it's kind of, um, if you read them separately like we're doing, you don't, you don't get the impact of it. So I want to try to keep the impact a little bit. Remember chapter 13, Saul was king. Everybody celebrated. So many people came to follow him. They had to send people home. They were like, our army's too big. We don't need an army this big. And then Jonathan went and beat a Philistine outpost and made all the Philistines angry. And this giant, giant, humongous army shows up. And then Saul is kind of like, oh, maybe we do need everybody. So they go get, they call everybody back that came to fight, that they sent home. And then Saul is scared. Samuel says, wait seven days for me. I'll show up. I'll do the sacrifice. And we'll inquire from the Lord what to do. Saul waits six and three quarter days, not seven days. Does the sacrifice himself. As soon as he's done, washes his hands and Samuel shows up and says, All right, you're fired. You're not the king of Israel anymore. The blessing of God has been passed on to another person. God's going to find somebody else. Your line is not even going to continue as kings. Like the ancestry of kings that would normally happen, that's not even going to happen. We're not even going to replace you with one of your descendants. We're just, you're done. And then chapter 13 ends, and Saul has 600 men. So at one point he had, he had 3,000 men. There were 2,000 with him and 1,000 with Jonathan. And they sent everybody else home. At another point they had even more than that. And then at the end of 13 he has 600. And we don't know if that's 600 between him and Jonathan together. They just, the ranks are low. And the Philistines are mad. And their weapons, the Israelite weapons, are garbage. We were doing yard work this Saturday, and um, every, I probably talk about this every Saturday. You guys are showing me some kindness. Every time we get a pitchfork out to turn the compost, every time we get a hoe out to pull the weeds, I'm like, this is all Israel had to fight with. Like this versus swords and chariots and trained soldiers and they're just farmers with blunt tools you know oh pretty bad you know everywhere in the bible where it's really bad for israel and they're in really bad shape that's all the best parts that's where all the good parts happen first samuel chapter 14 one day jonathan the son of saul said to the young man who carried his armor so he had armor he had somebody helping him, right? You can't always, you can't carry all your stuff and fight. So you have an armor bearer that comes along with you that's probably not a good fighter, but it's somebody that's going to help you train a little bit. And they, they might be really good at helping you train, and they're really good at hauling your stuff along with you and carrying your gear. That way you're ready to fight. He says, come on, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah 
in the pomegranate cave at Migran. So if you're going to show off and like proclaim where you are and I'm the king and I have power and here I am and we're ready to lead the army, do you think it's a good thing to hide in a cave? <laughs> Probably not. That's the state of Israel is Israel's army. Is there a hide? The king is hiding in a cave. But if you're going to hide in a cave, I would want to hide in a cave called the pomegranate cave. Because that means they're probably, it's probably where they store the pomegranates. It could be shaped like a pomegranate, but it's more likely that's where they store them. And so he's got yummy, yummy food, and he gets to hide. The people were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Oh, man. Okay, so if you read all that, all of that's in there on purpose. Do you remember who this guy is when you get the lineage? Eli was the corrupt priest whose sons would be smooching on the women that brought the sacrifices to the temple and they would steal the best parts of the meat from the Lord. And God said through Samuel, I'm going to cut off your family line. And no one in your family will be priest. Ever. It's over for you. So here's Saul, who's been cut off as king. And who does he have as his priest? A priest who's going to be cut off as a priest. This is, not, this is just not good. So it's Ichabod's brother. People did not know that Jonathan had gone. And he went. He goes over. No, so... You know how we talk about Wrights Hill? Wrights Hill, Mount Auburn. We've got names for these things. They had names for these two cliffs. Name of the one was Bozes and the other was Senna. There's these two cliffs and there's this big river valley in between. Creek. Not, not Ohio River. Smaller than the Ohio, bigger than Pigeon Creek. How's that? Somewhere in between. These cliffs, one is slippery and the other one is thorny, covered with thorns and sharp. That's what those two words mean. And so everybody knows, man, that one cliff is just slick as can be. It's dangerous and it's slick. The other cliff is thorny and sharp and treacherous. And that's what they call these two cliffs. It's pretty good if you're in a war and you're trying to hide. If you're going to hide in a cave full of pomegranates, yes, sign me up for that. That's a good spot to hide. Another good place to hide would be on a cliff where the bad guys are across the slippery cliff and the river valley and the thorny spiky cliff, right? Because they're going to have to cross all that to attack you. So... That's where Jonathan is, safely. Jonathan said to the young man, Come on, let's go over there to those uncircumcised Philistines. Basically, this is like a cuss word for what unholy dogs they are. We're going to go, this is like insert racial slur, slander, you know, bad word that the Bible translators translated literally instead of figuratively what they were calling these guys. Maybe the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving 
by many or by few. Isn't it wild that Jonathan doesn't know if God is going to work for them or not? Jonathan doesn't, it's not like, behold, the Lord has called me to kill the Philistines. Instead, he's like, you know what, let's go over there and fight those guys. Who knows? Maybe God is for us. Maybe God will defend. It doesn't matter whether we have a huge army or a little army if God is doing the fighting for us. Look at what faith this is compared to Saul, who is, I don't need to listen to Samuel the prophet. I'm scared. I have all the stuff to do a sacrifice. I'm going to do a sacrifice. I'm going to do this religious activity and I don't need to listen to the prophet versus Jonathan, who is, I don't have access to a prophet, but you know what? If God wants us to win, we will win. And if God wants us to not, we can't fight against God. So he has this great faith. His armor bearer says, do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. I'm with you heart and soul. That phrase, I'm with you heart and soul, that comes up in a couple places in Scripture where God is going to do something great. It's also, uh, this is in Hebrew and, and the New Testament's in Greek, but it's the same type of thing that Jesus prays for us in John 17. That we would be unified in heart and soul. That they would be one like you and I are one, is what Jesus prays. There's, there is some, something about God's people being united and unified, heart and soul, that God really moves in that. I mean, it makes sense, right? Jesus also said, this is how all men will know that you're my disciples, that you follow me for your love for one another. If we're bickering against each other, we don't show the world how beautiful it is to be a part of the body of Christ. When we show that we're united heart and soul, that we're together, that we care for one another, that we we agree with one another, gosh, then the world's like, man, I've never seen people get along like that. Doesn't mean everybody, we gotta get, I mean, I don't like mustard, Levi loves mustard, but we can still be united heart and soul and he can have all my mustard, right? It doesn't mean we have to be mindless and just do what everybody else does. But in the real deep, real stuff, united heart and soul so Jonathan says okay here's what we'll do we'll cross over to them at this point the armor bearers got to be like say what did you see those two cliffs they're not named slippery and thorny for no reason right we're going to cross over we're going to show ourselves to them they're not even going to sneak at night they're just going in broad daylight if they shout to us wait there until we come to you then we'll stand still in our place and we won't go up to them. So we're at least going to climb down one of these cliffs, make ourselves known. If they say, wait there, we're going to come fight you, then we'll wait. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this will be the sign to us. He's kind of doing a Gideon thing, isn't he? He's saying, if they say it like this, then that will be our sign from God that God's given them over to us to beat them. Well, 
There's also some practical logistics here, right? If those guys are going to stay up there and be lazy, then that means that they don't even, they don't even want to get out of their camp and come fight. But it could also be wisdom because if they can make it all the way down that cliff and all the way up that cliff, they might just be letting the cliff do the fighting for them, right? The Philistines are like, if you survive making it up there, we'll fight you. Come on, go ahead and try it. But that's the, little, that's the little hint that Jonathan puts out there. If they say, come up here, God has given them over. So they both show themselves to the garrison. And the Philistines, Philistines said, hey, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they hidden themselves. Totally making a joke on King Saul hiding in the cave, right? Men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll teach you a thing. Can you imagine what that moment was like? I mean, they're walking out there. They're out in the open. They could get hit by an arrow. You know, the the Philistines could just, they got the 30,000 chariots or whatever. They could just rain down on those guys and destroy them. It's just two of them. So it's scary. It's bold. You know, he's praying, God, please be with us. Give these, fair, give these uh, uncircumcised Philistines over into, into our hands. Give us victory. And when those guys shout, come on up here so we can teach you something. It's like, yes, we have won. Our victory was just handed to it. God just showed us that the victory has been handed to us. What do you think it was like to climb up that other side of the cliff? If you're Jonathan the armor bearer and you've got this confirmation because God, God took the bait and went with it and if they say come up here and fight us because it's, it's going to be you're going to be right in their camp, right? They have all their weapons. They're obviously at an advantage. But God did the little answer and now Now they're going to climb up that rock with joy. They're going to climb up those rocks with celebration. They're already going to be celebrated. Look, he says, when they shouted, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. He is climbing up this thorny or slippery cliff. We don't know which one was which, right? He's doing this difficult thing knowing that the Lord has already given him victory. He has already won this fight. And now he just has to do it. Do the actual labor of it, right? But God's already done it. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer killed them after him. You don't even get any details. Like, this is not an action movie, right? This is a history book. At the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men, as it were half a furrow's length of an acre of land. So, basically, this little campment was an area, you know, little area. There were 20 guys. Jonathan comes up the side of the mountain, side of this cliff, and just starts fighting. Remember, there's only two swords in Israel. One is King Saul's in the pomegranate cave. The other one is on the top of that ridge in the hand of Jonathan. 
One is sitting with a guy that thinks that if I do all the religious stuff, oh, I need to offer a sacrifice. I'm not going to listen to a prophet. Oh, I need to haul the Ark of the Covenant around wherever I go. Oh, I need to have a whole bunch of priests around. He's doing no good at all, right? Meanwhile, there's this guy that has faith. Faith, an accurate faith in God of Israel who can save by many or by few. And he is acting on that faith and he is winning. Do you remember at the beginning of 1 Samuel 13 who won, who fought that little garrison of the Philistines and made all the Philistines angry? Was it Saul? It was not Saul. It was Jonathan. Saul wasn't even, he was scared in chapter 13. He's scared in chapter 14. Here's Jonathan fulfilling God's faithfulness, fulfilling God's promise. And he strikes him down. So the way the armor bearer worked is your armor bearer, since he's carrying all the stuff, he's also your number one looter and pillager. So I fight the guy and I kill the guy and injure him, knock him down. The next guy comes. I go fight this guy. My armor bearer comes along behind me. Just make sure they're dead. Does the really dirty work. And then checks their gear. Ooh, we could use that. We could use one of those too. Oh, this guy, he's got bacon. We won't take the bacon. But So that's what the armor bearer does. He comes along behind and he cleans up. And he might have to do a little bit of fighting. Because remember, he's kind of like the coach. He's kind of like the manager. He's kind of like the water boy. All wrapped up in one. The first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. There was a panic in the camp. So they have these camps and they look over and the Philistines see 20 guys get wiped out by one dude. The other thing, it doesn't say it, but it hinted at it earlier. They see that one dude is not fighting with a pitchfork or an ox goad or an axe. He's fighting with a sword. We didn't think the Israelites had weapons. We thought we were coming out here to fight, right? If you're a Philistine, you're thinking, I thought we were coming out here to fight all these Israelites and they're all a bunch of farm boys with sticks and pitchforks. That dude's got a sword and I can tell he, oh, oh. And he just wiped out all 20 of the men over on that ridge. And where he must have climbed and he must have gone and he must have climbed down that and panic sets in. Okay? It's really wild how the Lord can use natural circumstances and natural situations, and then he can also make it supernatural, right? Because if you were in that next camp on the next ridge and you saw all that, you'd be like, I don't know who that dude is, but if he comes towards us, I'm running. Because the dude is bad. Just from looking at the cliffs and all that. And the Lord just amplified that. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a tremendous panic. So panic spreads. Whoa, we're under attack. They just wiped out the, you know, the South Garrison, whatever. They're like, what? How could they do that? Everybody starts to panic. And then the Lord just throws in an earthquake. <laughs> just to shake it, just to make every, 
if you could not be, if you could be stressed, an earthquake is going to add to that, right? The watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked. This always cracks me up. Saul, he's so scared. You know he's got really good watchmen. Because he's not going to be anywhere near the fight. He's, he wants to hear about it from everybody. It's a, little, it's a little joke in there by the writer. The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked. They saw every, all the Philistines on the hills. Ah! They're all running around panicking, running away. Saul said to the people, Find out who has gone out from us. When they had, they counted. Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. They found out. They realized Jonathan and his armor bearer weren't around. Saul says to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went. You know, he's bringing the ark of God around. Talk to the priest. And tell... (laughs) This is all so funny. Saul was talking to the priest. The tumult in the camp and the Philistines increased more and more. So there's something going on with as Saul is asking the priest what's going on over there. They're just freaking out more. They're just going more berserk. And then he says, okay, okay, enough of that. They're going crazy. We got we to do something. We got to go fight them now that they're all frazzled. And it says, behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was great confusion. They're fighting against themselves at this point. They're so panicked. They don't even know who's who. Remember, they they thought that everybody they were going to be fighting against had sticks and pitchforks. But now the enemy could be somebody with a sword that might contribute to why they're all hacking each other up. Even at that point, there were Hebrews who had been with the Philistines. And they turned and came back to be with the Israelites. So that panic didn't affect them, which kind of shows this is some supernatural panic from God. And then all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country heard and they come out to battle and they start beating all the Philistines. We're going to take advantage of this weakness. They got 30,000 chariots, whatever, but they're panicky. So now we're fired up to fight. All of that is crazy, right? It's such, it's such a picture of that exact thing that Jonathan said. That God is able to save whether with many or with few. It says at the end of the book of Job that God's plans cannot be thwarted. And I love that because I get to say the word thwarted. But I also love that because God has a plan and He can do stuff And it's not according to how many people he has to do it. He does it. Within within 70, no, within 40 years of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead, world political leaders said these men, talking about the 11 apostles, said these men have turned the world upside down. 11 of them. 11 of them that for most of the time they were with Jesus were bickering about who was his favorite. And bickering about, can we bring fire down on this city that doesn't believe in you? And we're, we're not doing the best. I mean, we read about them and we're like, gosh, I would be such a better disciple than these guys are. 
That's good. You can think that. Go for it. It doesn't mean these massive numbers to God. It's a king with a whole army that won't listen to God, that won't listen to God's prophets, is not as powerful as one... What is Jonathan? He's on a cursed family line. His family line has been cursed. His his dad was unfaithful, right? Jonathan, one guy, even from a cursed family line, that has faith that God will save, God can use to do this incredible, awesome thing. Which means we got to flip over to Galatians. What? So there's this other thing that Saul did. And he said, oh, let's beat those Philistines. We're going to beat them so bad nobody eats until we've beaten all the Philistines. Everybody is going to go without food. And some of them are like, what? And Saul, remember, he just wants to do all the religious activities and he's got all the superstition and he doesn't listen to God. He doesn't listen to his law. But man, we're going to work this stuff. We're going to make God do what we want. Remember, Jonathan was like, maybe God will fight for us. Saul is like, we're going to make God win. We're going to fast. We're not going to eat until we beat everybody. So i got to find Galatians. There we go. Galatians is really good at using the Old Testament to frame works or faith. Is it by obeying the law or is it by believing in God? And I'm just going to give you this little short bit to interpret 1 Samuel with Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Is those that are of faith are the sons of Abraham in the scripture, foreseeing God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you will all nations be blessed. Not just Israel, all nations. Not just people that have the law, but people that have faith. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This is Saul. He's relying on the works of the law. If I do the sacrifice right, if I haul the Ark of the Covenant around right, if I got all these priests around me right, law, law, law. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not buy buy all the books written in the law. Basically what Paul is saying is, if you're going to live according to a bunch of rules of what's right and wrong and what's good and holy, you better get all of them exactly right. Every single one of them. Because if you get one wrong, you've broken the law that you said you have to follow to be righteous and you're no longer righteous. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. This is Galatians 3.11. The righteous shall live by faith. The law is not of faith. The one who does them will live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus became that curse that none of us can follow, that none of us can obey, so we're all cursed. 
And He puts, takes away the curse so that the Holy Spirit can live inside of us. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel 14. Wait, but time warp. But this and that, right? It's always been that God's people will be saved by faith. They express that faith in the Old Testament by obeying the law. But there are times where they just expressed it by obeying God. And that was what Jonathan did. That's what Jonathan was doing. I'm going to rely on God for this salvation. So you flip back and just to say it real quick. Saul said, nobody eats until I kill all the Philistines. That is not the way God wanted them to be. So Jonathan goes, he's with all the people, they're all fighting, they find all this honey on the ground. And Jonathan's like, oh honey. (laughs) And it says his whole face brightened up, that he stood up straighter, that his skin started to glow, because he hadn't eaten all day either. And it says that he did not know the rule that Saul made that nobody was going to eat. Again, this guy's making a joke. The dude that wrote this. Why didn't he know what Saul's proclamation was? Because he was out living by faith. He was out fighting the Philistines. He wasn't staying in this little cave making a bunch of rules and laws and trying to put on how holy he was. He was living by faith. He was living dependent on God, so he didn't even hear the rules that Saul was making up. This is the same thing the Pharisees did. This is the same thing the church today does. Rule on rule, law on law, direction on direction, until we don't even know what it is to live by faith because we're so afraid of breaking some rule. He didn't even know. So... The curse that Saul said was that whoever ate is going to die, even if it's my son Jonathan. What an idiot, right? (laughs) This whole descending thing is showing how much Saul is just messed up and gone off the tracks. Well, they cast lots, they figure out the whole thing, and they all find out, sure enough, it was Jonathan that ate. Oh, wait. Since they saw Jonathan eating and how much he brightened up, everybody was like, hey, we can eat. We should start eating. So they start killing animals in the land of the Philistines and eating them with their blood in them, which is against the Mosaic law. You don't eat meat with blood. That's even gross for southern Indiana people. They were were way breaking the law because, again, they're not living by faith. So then they put a whole stop to the thing. Saul says, we're going to kill whoever ate. They find out it was Jonathan. All the people say, don't kill Jonathan. He's the best one out of all of us. He's the one that's... We all sinned by eating meat with blood in it. We sinned by not trusting God. We sinned by trusting in these religious trinkets to save us, even if it was the Ark of the Covenant. Let's just follow Jonathan. And that's how the chapter ends. So it ended... Chapter 13 started with Saul being king and this awesome army, but Jonathan being with faith. He wasn't even anointed to be king, right? But with his faith did all this great stuff. And success in the eyes of God is not to be king because Jonathan's never going to become king because the line's been cut off, right? But success in the eyes of God is to live by faith. 
And that's what, that's what he did, and that's how he lived it out. All right, let's pray. Lord, we want to be like Jonathan. We don't want to be like Saul. Be with us and guide us. Free us from our, our laws and our religious trappings and the things that we try to do to manipulate you. And help us to just rest. To rest and rejoice in the victory that you have already won for us on the cross. To fight whatever fights that you would give us to fight with your ways and your tools and not the tools of this world. Not the tools of mankind and their wars. Lord, be exalted. Be shown for the grace and the mercy and the faith that you put in us, the faith that you bought for us on the cross and that you sealed for us when you rose from the dead and sent your Holy Spirit. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Amen.